The Badlands. It's a thrilling term, isn't it? It stirs images of sullen skies, barren soil, perhaps a cow skull bleaching under the sun. If you're a movie fan, it's a Terence Malick western in which Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen fake their own suicides and wander through the wilderness, murdering as they go. But the Badlands are more than a generic or a symbolic idea, as visitors to South Dakota's Badlands National Park know. They're a territory with some awesome and otherworldly sights, and that they're so carefully protected illuminates something else too, a sense of how America sees itself. My name's Matthew Sweet, and this is the podcast from Intelligent Life, sister magazine of The Economist, where you can hear our contributors in conversation. And with me is the writer Simon Barnes, who's explored South Dakota's Badlands for the January-February issue of the magazine. So, Simon, the Badlands, not so bad. It was wonderful. It was an absolutely extraordinary experience going there. I thought it was going to be something, but I didn't expect it to be quite so uh, astonishing. It was the Badlands Wall that first gets to you, a 50-mile-long striated strip of broken rock. And it's like a lunar landscape, but designed and hand-painted. And it seems to go on forever and ever in a way that we simply can't imagine if you happen to live on a small and overpopulated island. They've got so much room there, so much room to appreciate all kinds of land, whether it's good land or bad land. But this is not pretty or picturesque in the conventional sense, is it? As you describe it, it does look like the, the landscape of another planet. I mean, the piece opens with this huge double-page spread, this image of this landscape where, as you say, you can see the stratification of the rock and you can also see the land above, beyond it, with mist settled upon it. Absolutely. It's not... Well, Constable wouldn't have painted it. It looks like... a. A vision of hell that just had a design makeover. It's uh, something that is fearful. It's not a place like open savannah or parkland in which a human soul feels naturally at home and at peace. There's a sense of danger about this landscape, a feeling that uh, if you walked for a long time, you would lose control very, very rapidly. You wouldn't be able to find food. You wouldn't be able to find water. This is an extreme place. It's called the Badlands for a reason. The Oglala Lakota people called it the land that is bad. The French fur trappers called it the mauvais terrain. The United States referred to it as suboptimal land or something along those lines. So it's not a hospitable environment. And I suppose, in a way, what the name memorialises is that history of seeing the natural world not as a place to be preserved and protected from us, but a place that perhaps needs to be tamed or or places that, that aren't welcoming to us, aren't habitable. It is a place that is right in the middle of that exact notion. It encompasses the moment when America realised that their conquest, a march west of civilization, was perhaps going not wisely but too well. It was not a struggle against nature anymore. Nature was doing the struggling. And it took some far-sighted people to say, hang on a minute, you know, we're doing this all right. We need to look after some of it. Some of this land is valuable, not just for the number of cows we can put in or the timber we can take out, but for itself and for the human resonance it also has. America had their first national park in 1872. That was Yellowstone. 
and the Roosevelt administration, Teddy Roosevelt, in the first decade of the 20th century, I think it was more than half a million acres of land were safeguarded. And subsequently, in 1916, the Organic Act was passed, separating national park from forestry, from commercial concerns. This was saying 100 years ago that this land has a value for itself. What was driving that idea? Do you think? Why does it appear at that moment? Why does this landscape, why do attitudes to it change? Why does it change from being a zone of fear and terror, perhaps, a zone of hostility to something that must be preserved? Well, I think it's particularly an American thing because the frontier spirit was being praised. Roosevelt was a bespectacled, skinny New Yorker, went out to Dakota, he went to North Dakota, had a ranch there, and he got it bad. He got it really bad. And he thought that this wild engagement on the fringes of society was valuable. It was what had helped to make America, and it should not be cast away. Yeah, for him, it was a personal matter with his connection to wilderness. But it was more than that. What he was doing reflected a much greater awareness and understanding throughout the population that wilderness was genuinely something that mattered, that it mattered to people. Does it also tell a story about the deeper history of America, its original population and its uh, relationship with its newer inhabitants. How is that legible in the story of the national parks? Well, absolutely. That is what you find very strongly. As you move into South Dakota, the last place you stop at in Nebraska is a place called White Clay, and that is on the edge of the Pine Ridge Reservation. The reservation is dry, so you can work out what white clay is. It's a place of desperation. It's a place of horizontal Indians and liquor stores. It's a place where you just want to die or close your eyes and pass through quickly. It's a place where history has blinked. Then you go across the reservation, which is very poor. It's not like an opulent suburb in America. It is not exactly a coincidence that the Native Americans were finally herded together to live on a land that is called bad lands, because it is bad lands. It's really, really hard to make a living there. And as you carry on on your journey towards the Badlands National Park, you go past Wounded Knee, the site of the massacre in which the army turned four machine guns onto a group of men, women and children, and something that was always be part of American history. One detail that really struck me in your account of this was the bluntness with which this site is labelled. You know, one imagines that this is a part of American history that is looked back on with a great deal of unease, that it's somehow unfinished business of some kind. And yet there the sign on the site is massacre site. It's totally blunt. Absolutely. That is because the site is not run as a national monument. There's no... uh, big money poured into it. It's run by the local people. There is a hand-painted sign there that tells you remorselessly, relentlessly, the awful details of that day. And it's just there in uh, absolutely naked for you to try and understand and make your own mind up as to how 
the country was built. It sounds more like the kind of thing one might find at a crime scene rather than that sort of heritage approach that when you visit a civil war site or a war of independence site where it's been processed in some way. There's rather nice signage, isn't there, there? And there are things to observe and it's all really neat and tidy. Yeah, it's always said, and at these places in particular, you can appreciate the old notion that history is the songs of the victors. But here at Wounded Knee... There weren't any victors. There were only losers. How does it feel to be out in this territory? Because, uh, you know, you walked through it relatively alone, didn't you? Indeed I did. And because it's a national park, it's well organised. You can easily walk away and get lost and spend a full day doing so, though I was unable to do that. I've spent a lot of time in wild places, and for me, there's always something of a homecoming in that. And so uh, just walking away out into the prairies that lie beyond the Badlands Wall, that was a really enthralling thing for me because I loved the psychological impact of the Badlands Wall. But going out into the prairies, the endless flat prairies that lie beyond That was something else again. That was a whole ecosystem I was unfamiliar with. And learning the way it all fits together was the most enthralling part of my stay. The American buffalo or bison there have been reintroduced and there's now a very decent population. And they are quite habituated to people, even to people on foot. And as long as you're not a fool, you can get quite close and give signals that you're non-threatening. So they will come and graze and just give you a kind of baleful glance saying, yeah, you know, that distance is okay. Don't push it. And you say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine about that. And there was one moment at dusk when I heard a chorus of coyotes, which was, I mean, these are things that uh, mean a lot to uh, to what will be exciting in any ecosystem. But there's also the kind of cultural messages that come because we've all watched lots of cowboy films. I love cowboy films. I'm I'm convinced that the outlaw Josie Wales, that the main character was modelled on me. So you're out there and you see these extraordinary beasts, the buffaloes with their cultural resonances and the chorus of the coyotes. It was a coyote call that is in fact the uh, inspiration for the theme music of Good and the Bad and the Ugly by Ennio Morricone. And uh, hearing that for real was a wonderful wildlife experience, but it was also a human and cultural experience at the same time. So it's to visit a place like this to go to a region that, in a way, we're used to experiencing third, fourth, fifth hand through those cultural representations. Yes, there's a sense in which nobody ever sees the New York skyline for the first time. And there's also a sense that nobody sees the prairie for the first time because we have all experienced it while riding on Trigger or in the company of Clint and the renegade Indian. Is this really a true wilderness? I mean, when we look at the British countryside, we know that we're really looking at a kind of industrial landscape. It's just that agriculture happens to be the industry. Are the Badlands truly wild? Very much so. I mean, the National Park Services are there in order to make this an accessible adventure and a law-abiding adventure because there's law enforcement stuff there. There are decent roads that you can drive to. You can go there. I saw a party of uh, people who obviously had the Badlands on their bucket list and they looked like they made it only just in time and they staggered out of the coach to take their pictures and got back in, I trust, uh, richer for the experience. But the extremely strange thing about going to the National Park was that we travelled through it, the photographer Ben and myself, by way of Nebraska, 
which is an extraordinary contrast between the way the British people, those that live in lowland agricultural Britain in particular, understand the entire notion of countryside. In Nebraska, there aren't any nice country pubs. There aren't any nice signs pointing out where you can go for a walk. There isn't a nice restaurant with a view where you can sit out over it. This is an open-air food factory. It's got cows, soy, cereals, wall-to-wall, and there is absolutely nothing other than that to stop you bruising your eyes against the landscape. But then you go into the Badlands National Park and you have, apart from the in-park infrastructure, You've got nothing human whatsoever. There is no attempt at integration. There's no amenity value to the agriculture. There are no people living inside the park itself. It seems that America, because it's got the space and because it has that kind of, if you can do it, you've got to do it kind of attitude, you know, go the whole way. I mean, if you go to a nautical-themed restaurant in England, you'll have a few pictures of ships on the wall. If you go to a nautically-themed restaurant in America, they'll have billowing canvas and sailors serving you and singing yo-ho-ho into the clam chowder. This is the same kind of thing. You've got extreme agriculture here, and then you've got extreme wilderness, more or less abutting to it. And it's an either-or. And that is how uh, you have the luxury of doing so if you've got immense land that we in England, in lowland England, really don't understand. What is it that draws people then from one side of this barrier to another? Why were people passing over from there and visiting the Badlands? You mentioned those people who who wanted to Mm. see it before they died. Mm. Why is that so necessary, do you think, to, to many Americans? I think necessary to us all. I mean, Americans have a romantic view about wilderness. So do we British, though, in a different way of approaching it. But more than that, I think part of the human condition is that wild places complete us. We've only been uh, civilized for a few centuries. We have a million years. Our minds are a good million years old, and they respond to landscape, to wild places, to wilderness. And there is something there, whether it's scary, whether it's comforting, it gives us something we simply can't get from town life. And there's also that sense of non-human life. The American scientist and science writer Edward Wilson coined the term biophilia, meaning the human affinity for non-human life. And if you've ever patted a dog or smelled a rose, you know exactly what he's talking about. But if you go out into Badlands National Park and have eye contact with the buffalo, hear those coyotes, or sit and watch the extraordinary goings-on at a prairie dog town, and then see them all die for cover as a prairie hawk comes gliding over, then you've touched something really deep in yourself, something that is a completion, something that we all badly need. And what concerns me is the fact that we need to know that we need it or we won't find it. And it concerns me that we're breeding a generation that doesn't understand that kind of joy, that kind of profound pleasure can be got quite easily by getting on a train, by getting on a bus, by going for a short car ride. What does it mean, though, in that precise American 
cultural context. I mean, this idea can't be totally disentangled from cultural history. What does it mean for an American to stand in a place like this? Is it a place where one could go to find some kind of connection with a pre-colonial past? I think there is something of that in it. But I think it's more than local history and more than immediate history. I think there is something ancestral there. But Americans do have a strong sense that the wilderness is part of their inheritance, not the countryside, not the cultivated countryside, but the wild places where uh, the untamed and untamable places is part of how America came about. This vast continent that people progressively went out in a series of generations to say, well, you know, we can do this, we can cope with that. And I think there is a feeling that by going out to a wild places, there is a reconnection with the human expansion and then beyond that to the ancestral connection. Thanks very much indeed, Simon. If you want to read Simon Barnes's article on the Badlands, you'll find it in the January-February edition of Intelligent Life magazine in print on our app or online at intelligentlifemagazine.com. On the next podcast in the series, Maggie Ferguson faces death 